Well, it, it is good, it is good uh, to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. If you haven't grabbed a copy of the scriptures, please do. We'll be in the book of Joel. Joel is in the Old Testament, so just kind of flip through some of those final major prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, and you'll get to Hosea and then Joel. And we begin a short eight-week series in this book. Now, I've never preached through Joel. I, in fact, have never sat under the book of Joel preached from someone else. And there's a chance that perhaps you haven't as either. The the Old Testament, uh, especially the prophets, whether major or minor, shorter ones like this one, the prophets in the Old Testament at large can often feel rather elusive to us. Uh, But coming off the heels of our series in the winter and through the spring in Matthew 1 through 7, we have something of a framework to go off of. Going through the book of Matthew, we had begun to see how Jesus, this royal one, he's the fulfillment in his person, in his teaching, and in his ministry and work of the entire Old Testament. Like Israel, Jesus also, he came out of Egypt, but he obeyed and endured in temptation where they had failed. So as we jump into the book of Joel, into a period of Israel's history, we already know the eventual outcome. And it's just as Jesus told those travelers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. All scripture, all scripture points to him. As we will come to see, so it is with Joel. There's something of a debate among the scholarly types as to when this book was written. Regardless of the specific date, it's widely accepted that Joel was written to the southern kingdom Judah before Babylon came and sacked him and took over. Now, you may have a map in the back of your copy of the scriptures. I'm going to put one up here on the screen. Now, after King David and Solomon, the nation was split into two kingdoms, north and south. Both had their problems, and God sent prophets to speak a word to these nations to remind them to be faithful followers of God. To faithfully follow God who had rescued and pulled them out of Egypt. So God sends Joel to speak a message to Judah, the bottom kingdom there. Like us today, they were an imperfect group of God's children. Children that had been called to a life of faithfully following him, but as they looked out at the past couple years of their life, their lives individually and corporately had been altered in a tragic way. So our main idea this morning in our passage will simply be this. God calls us to weep, and yet he calls us to hope for joy. This is fundamentally what is distinct about the worldview that is truly Christian. The scriptures teach that God providentially, he brings difficulty, trial, heartache, and the consequence of sin into our lives. And he calls us to feel it, Mm. to feel the depths of it, he calls us to. There is a heaviness and a sobriety to the real world. We don't pretend that it doesn't exist. And yet, yet in the midst of it, in preparation of its coming, in the aftermath of the mess, through all of it, the Christian worldview is one that sees hope 
hope that we have in Christ. Well, it's no different for us in Joel 1. So you're here this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what you're dealing with, God has a word for you. Would you read with me, please? Joel 1, I'll read verses 1 through 12. I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. word. A heavy, a sober word, but if you stick with me a minute, a really hopeful word as well. So first in our passage, we see clearly the results of unfaithfulness, the results of it in verses one through four. Joel calls the elders and everyone in the land to consider this one question. (laughs) Have you ever Have you ever seen anything like this in your entire life? Have you ever heard of something like this happening in the days of your father? Going back through our history, have you ever seen it? Well, the quick answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. No one has ever seen destruction like this. So, go tell your kids. Tell your grandkids. Make sure they all pass it along. You'll remember this. For the rest of your life. This is history in the making. Verses 1 through 4. The results of all this unfaithfulness. It's their version of 9-11. Or Pearl Harbor. It's tragic. So verse 4. Joel looks out. And the locusts have eaten everything. Whether they are cutting. Swarming. Hopping. Or destroying. Doesn't matter. It's all gone. The land, their lives have been altered, changed, ravaged. Their homes, fields, jobs, and security have been wiped away. 
Later in Joel, we understand that this potentially has been going on for at least a couple of years. Joel 2.25 says this. God promises, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. We thought COVID was bad. It, it was bad. But nothing compared to this. But do you notice who sent the locusts that destroyed everything? God did. He said it was my army. Why would God send a bunch of grasshoppers to destroy the land of Judah in a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event where the grandmas and the grandpas would be telling their grandkids for years, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what happened in my day. We walked uphill both ways. Why would God do that? Well, the short answer is, if you're not familiar with the history of Israel, it's simply this. God sent the hoppers because of the sin of God's people. As our sermon title suggests, Judah, this southern kingdom, they had given their loyalty over to someone other than God. Their loyalty was to themselves, and they had turned from God. So God, in his kindness, yeah, his kindness, he sends a plague on his people to shake them from their dull, hardened, unbelieving, unresponsive hearts. Perhaps you can relate. You find yourself in a season where you've turned from God. But before I get to us, I'm going to stress something called discontinuity. If we jump to ourselves immediately in this passage, we'll miss the context and the message as a whole. There's a disconnect from Judah in us today. There is a sense in which this has nothing to do with us at all. So let me explain by going back to the question, why would God send an army of grasshoppers to punish? Short answer, the old covenant. Back in the book of Exodus, up on a mountain, God began to lay out the laws of a promised relationship that he had started back with Abraham, our buddy Abe. But now through Moses, laws would be given to these covenant children. And God was going to bring them to a new land. If God's people obeyed these laws, they would be blessed and rejoiced. Maybe you heard the language, and this is familiar of the Old Testament. Here's all these laws. If you obey them, I will give you a land full of milk and honey, iPhones and Starbucks. That was the promise. Well, they turned from God and his laws. If they did, God says there would be cursing and there would be weeping. And you can go back in the Old Testament law and places like Deuteronomy 28 and read of all these blessings and cursings. So what happened? Fast forward hundreds of years and we find ourselves in the book of Joel. The people look out on a land that has been cursed. They have failed to uphold the covenant. God is faithful. They turned. God provided. They consumed. God forgave, they continued sinning. God sent judges to warn them, they repeated the cycle. And so as you read Joel and all the prophets for that matter, we see God sending messengers to proclaim this. You have wandered far from God and he's going to deal with you as he said he would in his law. But a new day will come. 
So why did God send the grasshoppers? The nation of Israel was unfaithful to the promised relationship they entered into in that old covenant. Now, this clearly has nothing to do with you and I. The old covenant expressed through Moses on that mountain was for a specific nation at a specific time. The locust came because of the results of unfaithfulness to that promised relationship. But what about today? What does Joel 1 offer us? We are not under the old covenant as faithful followers of Christ. We're under a new covenant. And I'll say more on that in a moment. But we have a few farmers in here. I think some of you have gardens too. So what, what if the locusts come today? What if the rain doesn't fall? What if there are cutting, swarming, hopping, and destroying locusts in our life and in our circumstances? Is it because our country has failed in relationship to covenant with God? If God sends an army of circumstance to the United States or to the lives of brothers and sisters in Pakistan, India, North Korea, Russia, Brazil, and Hungary... Does God send that because of their unfaithfulness to the old covenant found in the Old Testament? No. No. Not in the same way with Israel. However, even in our new covenant context, now that Jesus has come, there still are results for personal and corporate sin, are there not? So whether the locus of circumstance, it comes into our personal lives, into our family, in our church, in our country, or the world at large, we can soberly consider what the Lord is sovereignly, providentially, and bringing lovingly before us to wake us up. One pastor put it this way. When God permits something to come to us in such a clear, undeniable way, our first thought shouldn't be personal acquittal on the grounds of divine mystery, but personal introspection on account of human sin. In, in other words, we should use this opportunity to examine ourselves before the Lord. We should consider if we individually, our families, our church are doing anything that dishonors God. So we understand that with Israel, they failed to uphold their end of a specific promised relationship with God. And but generally, for us, there are consequences to our unfaithfulness, right? We live in a broken, sinful, stained world, and there are real things that ripple from our decisions. So when we see locusts or pandemics, or corruption, or loss, or decay, or a number of any things around us. It is a result of sin. So a couple of diagnostic questions for us this morning. If there are no accidents in this world, no such thing as an interruption, no random coincidences, but only a sovereign God directing all things, then here's the question. What might he be saying to me personally in this circumstance that I'm witnessing or this circumstance that I'm a part of? And if all sin, even my own personal sin, if it contributes to the army of locusts that come in life, 
What specifically in my life is there that I should repent of? If I contribute to part of the problem of the locust that we see, what is there in my life that I should consider? Well, if that's not sober enough, right? If that's not sober enough, we see not just the results of our unfaithfulness, but from Joel, we also hear this call, this call to weep. And this is directly in verses 5 through 12. The faithful follower has never been called to simply make a mental assent to some academic truths and beliefs. God doesn't want Judah, or us for that matter, to just recognize the terrible effects of sin on our life in the world. God is after the heart of his children. So we see in this a call to weep because everyone in Judah has felt the pain of the army of locusts that God has sent. So one commentator was helpful and explained it this way. No one has been able to escape the plague's tenacious grasp. Since all levels of society benefit from the vine, the fig tree, and the crops, therefore all have been affected. The three societal groups most directly impacted, however, are the wine drinkers who delight in its abundance, the priests who utilize the fruit in their offerings, and the farmers who plant, cultivate, and reap the harvest. So look back at the text with me for a moment. We see these three groups. Verse 5. Verse 5, we see the drunkards are to weep. Verse 9, look down, the priests are to mourn. Verse 11, finally, the farmers are to be ashamed. The prophet, he uses each group to call out to God's people so that they would have a true, genuine remorse and repentance for their own unfaithfulness. So consider with me just a, a couple specifics from these groups. First, with the drunkards. Some of the implication is that perhaps they've fallen asleep at the will. Uh, drowned in the comfort of abundance, they've been drunk literally on the sweet wine and figuratively on the allures of living for self. They've become dull to their sin and the ruin of the world around them. So these people, instead of turning to God, they turn to self. And verse 7, the vine, the fig, and the branch well, it produces no more. There's no more to drink. Second, with the priests. Their lamenting and crying over the destruction of the land is to be like a young woman who is mourning the loss of her young husband. Tragic, intense, violent mourning. The priests, they are unable to function in the temple. There's no grain. There's no drink. There's no oil. And these were required for Old Testament priestly duties. It's not just that the land is destroyed as they look out. God has sent his army of locusts, and it's not just comfortable living that's distant. God is distant. Third, with the farmers, these vine dressers and tillers of the soil are to feel the weight of shame as they look at their ruined fields. God had called his people to faithfully follow him to uphold his laws, to care for the land, and to honor them with their lives. The shame is felt by all because their turning from God has led to verse 12. The vine dried up. The fig tree dies. 
the fruit is dried up, and so too is the joy of God's people. Through the prophet Joel, God calls Judah to see their part in the ruin of the land and weep. That might strike you as a little odd. At one end, you may think that it's pretty obvious and it doesn't need to be said. Of course Judah is at fault. They have a long history of turning to false gods, serving self, getting drunk, abusing the land, dealing wickedly with one another and those around them. From kings down to the peasants, God's people in the Old Testament continually turned to greed, pride, sexual deviance, and they had cold hearts towards him. But on the other end, if you're here considering Christianity, if you're something of a skeptic, if you have questions, you may be here and the strong words of Joel seem a little harsh. God seems harsh. Sending grasshoppers to destroy the land because they messed up. Prophets calling people not just to recognize their sin, but calling people to weep, lament, and be ashamed. Okay. All right, here we go. Some guilt shaming, right? Matt, I had the hopes that Lakewood would be different, but you jumped into the Old Testament. Here comes the fire and brimstone that I knew you judgmental Christians had. It was only a matter of time before it came out. Well, if you've been here recently, and we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, this high call for us to follow Jesus' teaching, what was perhaps surprising to many of us as we went through that series is that Jesus had the same message as Joel does here. Israel, Judah, your, mine, our greatest problem. You want to know your greatest problem is? I'll tell you. It's inside of us and not outside of us. The continual message of old and new covenant. It's always been a real temptation and a hurdle for God's people to point the finger. So, back in Joel, they may ask, why? You want to know? You're asking me, why is our land full of locusts? Why has the country been destroyed? I'll tell you, it's the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It's their fault. Oh, okay, okay, maybe it's God's people's, maybe it's our fault, but we've had some terrible kings. The kings are the reason that we're failing. Well, the elders, let me tell you about the elders. It's their fault. It's my neighbor's fault. God has sent judgment in the army of locusts because of them. And aren't we prone to do the same thing? The prophet's word to Judah here in Joel and its record kept for us today is so that God's people would look inward. My friends, when was the last time we looked in? When the trials rage, when the world explodes, when the land or life doesn't produce the kind of fruit we thought we would see. Where do we look? No doubt, hear this, no doubt there is a real sense in which we often reap the consequences of other people's sin. That's true. But who does God call us to judge? Ourselves first. 
God's people reflect first and foremost on their own life. And that's what Joel is calling the people of Judah to do. Calling the people of Judah, could your sins, Judah, be part of the problem? Well, most certainly, it seems. When we dare to stop, to reflect, to think, and we look out at a broken world, or we look in at a broken heart that's contributed to it, we don't enjoy what we see. I know I'm not the only one. There's no way you can tell me that as you look out on the world, or as you look in, sometimes you just don't like what's there. I'm not flipping my hair. There's a cord in my way. I'm not that vain. You see, the devastation of a destroyed world or a destroyed heart leaves us feeling hopeless, doesn't it? Here's how one artist put it. Two of you in this room will appreciate this. Uh, Juice World. And I've had this song stuck in my head for a couple weeks. I can't breathe. I'm waiting for the exhale. Toss my pain with my wishes in a wishing well. Still no luck, but oh well. I still try even though I know I'm going to fail. It's stress on my shoulders like an anvil. Perky got me itching like an anthill. Drugs killing me softly, Lorne Hill. Sometimes I don't know how to feel. At its core, at its center, what is this heart saying? What is the longing of our own heart? Is it not the restoration of verse 12? Look again. The vine is dried up and dead. The tree is languishing. The fruit is dried up and gone. And so is the joy and the gladness of humanity. Oh God, I'm not fine. Have you seen my life? Have you seen, the, have you seen that world out there? I can't breathe. I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. Which leads to our final point. The rejoicing in hope. Here, we take on the task of understanding Joel as a Christian, not as a Jew. Understanding the book of Joel in light of the person and the work of Christ. So we go back to a question that you've heard me ask in every series we've been over in the last two years. Why did God have this writer include these verses in the scripture? Why would God have Joel come along with such strong language? Why would he leave for us a record of the destruction of the land and the hopelessness, hopelessness that Judah had in this once-in-a-lifetime event? Why do we have it? All of Scripture connects us to the redemptive theme that points us to Christ. Unfaithfulness to the covenant, destruction because of sin, weeping, wailing, not knowing what to do, God's people were in a tough spot. And many years would pass and Jesus would come and he would perfectly fulfill the law where Israel, Judah, and we have failed. Jesus upheld the covenant and instead of cashing in on all those blessings that God promised to those who obeyed, Jesus took on the curse in our place. 
He became our substitute on the cross so that if we believe in him, we would never know the cursing of Joel 1. He became our substitute. He came to establish a new covenant, a new promise relationship by faith. Where Paul, he would put it in Romans 8, there is no condemnation to the people of God who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you are changed, forgiven. You can rejoice because the curses of Joel, the curses of the Old Testament, well, they've begun to be reversed. And you will never rely upon your perfect performance for good standing with God. But trust in Jesus' perfect performance on your behalf. Because Jesus, Jesus is enough. Let me show you. I'm going to put up a slide. I'll read Joel 1.12 and then a couple selected verses from John 15. Joel 1.12. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. <laughs> but Christ... Jesus' words, he says this in John 15, 1. Your vine died. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. John 15, 5. Your Your fruit dried? I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, your joy is dried? John 15, 11. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, do you see? Do you see the beauty of Christ? The locusts did come. And they destroyed Judah because of their sin. But the story didn't end there, did it? And in a general way, you and I can see the destruction around us as we consider our own sin, the brokenness of this world. Yes. <laughs> but do, do, you, do you see? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, No matter the army of circumstance that God has sent to you in this season, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. There is great restoration available in new covenant promises in this relationship to this good news in this good Savior. Jesus is the vine who brings true life. Jesus is the one who brings back that dried up, dead fruit. And Jesus is the one who doesn't leave us to produce our own joy, but John 15, 11 says, he will give us a joy outside ourselves. He will give us his joy. He will give us himself. Are you here this morning and you're in a season of dryness? Does your life look like Joel 1? Have the locusts come? 
and they're as big as mosquitoes sometimes. They're just nipping at you. That's what the, I think that's what mosquitoes are in Minnesota. They're locusts. We go through seasons like that, do we not? God called Judah to abandon their loyalty to the world and to themselves and to confess, delight, and in full abandonment, give their loyalty and life to the Savior that they desperately longed for. Will you do the same? Tomorrow's Monday. When you step out into the life that God has given you. And sometimes it's nothing but locusts. Will you tomorrow choose to look to Christ. Who brings healing and fruits. Forgiveness and the true satisfaction that you've been longing for. It's what Judah longed for. And it's what we've been given in the gospel. God calls us to weep. Yes, but we are also called to hope, to hope in joy, to hope for joy, to hope for the joy that Jesus promises you and I in this new covenant relationship. Brothers and sisters, will you come to him? And actually, this informs our communion time really well. I'll ask those who are serving communion to come up front. But Jesus knew in the institution of communion that there would be a day and a season in which our lives felt dry and shriveled up. That our context would provide its own brokenness. That we would look out around us and say, I don't know what's happening. Everything's destroyed. Nothing is like what it was. And there would be seasons Sometimes days or weeks, and then for some of us, sometimes those seasons turn into to months and years even. Seasons in which our joy has been shriveled. Seasons in which we need something. God, show me. I need a burning bush. I need some kind of sign that you're real and powerful and near. God, I need Something. And in his kindness, he gave us communion. This physical, tangible reminder. Oh God, you seem far off and the locusts seem near. And Christ gives us communion so that as we take this bread in this cup, we would remember what he's done. And we would know the realness and the closeness of God here and now. If you have trusted in Christ, this meal is for you. Take, remember, and rejoice. If you are here and you're considering Christianity, if your life is nothing but locusts and you are looking for hope, allow this to go by and consider your need for a Savior. A need for a Savior who restores and changes everything. Let me pray and we'll have our servers come up. Father, uh, that is the big prayer request this morning. That in our remembrance and our partaking of, partaking of communion, in our consideration of Joel 1, 
that you would water our dry, weary souls. That the reversal of Joel 1 would take place not just in a general way out there, but in a very specific way to each one of our hearts. So Lord, help us to take just a moment now to reflect. God, we reflect on our own sin and we confess it to you and ask for forgiveness. We confess that some of what we see in the brokenness of this world is because of our own sin. We confess that as we look out, we feel shame and there's weeping and we have questions. And we confess Christ. We confess our Savior. We confess that we need him. We confess that it's not our performance, but his that we cling to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.